Good morning. What do you mean? Do you mean to wish me a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose. Hmm. Can I help you? That remains to be seen. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. An adventure? Now, I don't imagine anyone west of Bree would have much interest in adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. Good morning. To think that I should have lived to be good morning by Belladonna Took's son, as if I were selling buttons at the door. Beg your pardon? You've changed. I'm not entirely for the better, Bilbo Beckins. I'm sorry, do I know you? Well, you know my name, although you don't remember I belong to it. I'm Gandalf. And Gandalf means... Me. Not Gandalf, the wandering wizard who made such excellent fireworks. Oh, oh too, used to have them on Midsummer's Eve. <laughs> no idea you were still in business. And where else should I be? <laughs> well, I'm pleased to find you remember something about me, even if it's only my fireworks. Well, that's decided. It'll be very good for you. Most amusing for me. I shall inform the others. Inform the who? What? No, 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 wait. We do not want any adventures here. Thank you. Not today. <laughs> not. I suggest you try over the hill or across the water. Good morning. Oh, how I long to bring the hobbit to the church. I love that clip for so many reasons. Besides the fact now I'm tempted to want to go home and watch all six movies and waste the rest of my life. Um, but I love that notion of Gandalf coming to Bilbo. Bilbo, as a young child, will know this if you watch the movie a little bit later, that as a young kid, he used to have these imaginations of adventures in far-off lands and fighting dragons and doing remarkable things. But somehow along the way, he's gotten older and he's kind of settled down. He inherited that home. We come to find out later. And all of a sudden, Gandalf shows up and he's just like, Bilbo's like, can I help you? And I love Gandalf's response. It's like, well, that remains yet to be seen. It reminds me of maybe the passage in 2 Chronicles 16 where it says that the eyes of the Lord are looking throughout all the earth to see if anybody's heart is for him. It's almost as if like God in his verse, not to say like Gandalf is more important to God, but it's almost like Gandalf is coming. It's like I'm looking for someone to share an adventure with. That's kind of like God's posture. 
He's looking all over the earth to see if anybody's heart is his, that is loyal to him, that is willing to say, I'm in. I will go with you on this adventure. And when we talk about an adventure, we're talking about a journey of faith, a journey of trust where we're going to leave behind what we have settled in, what we've become comfortable in, what we have like sought and, and found as like a place of security. And I love that when Bilbo like was hurt, it's like, I want to invite you to share an adventure with me. Like his thing is like, did you see his non-verbal? He's like, adventures, they're nasty, uncomfortable, right? They'll make you late for dinner. Great line. Absolutely love it. It messes up my routine, right? It shakes things up. It removes my comfort, my ease, all that I think is predictable in my life. Like he's like, the more like Gandalf like presses in, the more Bilbo pushes back. He's like, no, I don't want it. Even though when he was a young kid, he dreamt of it. But in the movie, we know that he goes through this process of thinking through and experiencing the dynamic and he sees his heart and he finally decides to go for it. So what does the hobbit have to do with altars? Nothing. I'm kidding. That was a lame joke. A lot. Because last week when we started looking at the life of Abraham, we saw that God invited Abraham into an adventure, to share an adventure with him. And he says, Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. No explanation, no clarity, just go, leave behind All that you know, all that is comfortable, all that you think you need, all of the provision. Because we know in Genesis 11 that his dad settled in Haran. He had the intention to go to Canaan. So Abraham, at this point, is 75 years old. And so he's built a business. He's building a life. He has family and relatives and friends there. And God says, go to a land that I will show you. That's an invitation to share an adventure with God. And all along, it's going to be the choice of who do we trust, whose voice are we listening to, that starts to reveal who or what we build altars to in our life because that place of worship in our hearts is the sole determining factor of how we will live. This invitation that Abraham went through is very similar for us. When God calls us to follow him, that is an initial invitation to join him on this adventure of faith where you have to leave behind the old, the old ways, the old habits, the old way of thinking and processing and reacting, the old ways, the things that we have grown accustomed to and have become convinced that we need and to move with him into the new. And we don't even know what the new is. Because God just wants us to trust him, which is part of sharing in his venture. Will you believe me? Because as you go, you're going to discover that there's more. You're going to get more blessing. And the blessings are ultimately wrapped up in knowing God. But we don't come to know God by choosing to stay settled in the old. We have to choose to join him on an adventure. So when we were looking at last week Abraham's journey. I want us to think about some of these questions. I want you to think about if God were to come to you today and invite you into an adventure of trust, not just like, hey, you know, come join me, but like I'm talking about now trust that's going to rattle the very core of your being. 
That's going to so shake you that you're going to walk out of here this morning wrestling significantly with the character of God. What would you do? You see, 2 Chronicles 16.9, as already referenced, is true. God is looking, to use the words of Gandalf, for someone to share in an adventure with. Is that you? Is that you? So I want to ask some pointed questions. Where are you right now? Have you settled for less in your life? Have you become complacent and too comfortable in your faith? Have you grown to be okay with the altars in your life that are dedicated to something else other than Jesus? You know it's there, and you know it's a problem, and you should probably deal with it, but you're like, yeah, I'll get to it. And it's just like that issue in the living room of your house that you know is bad, and the longer the days go by, the more it becomes normal, and then the guest comes, and they point it out, you're like, oh, yeah, that altar. Are there things in your life that you're just not willing to depart with or to offer or sacrifice in order to move in faith? Have you given up on your dreams and hopes and desires of what you once thought that God was going to do in your life, in your family, and maybe also through your life? Where maybe you've traded the things of this world, kind of like what we were talking about a few weeks ago, where we maybe, like this represents earth and all the things of the earth and things that we believe we need. Maybe we've traded in like all of these promises and all of these blessings that are wrapped up in knowing God for this. Because after all, when you become an adult, you got to get a job, you got to settle down, you got to get a home, you got to get a raise. You better get your 401k in order because, you know, Social Security is like, what is Social Security anyways? Like, like we start to panic and we start to think and we get caught up in the mainstream of culture where now we start to like crave what the world is attempting us and persuading us that we need. But not only that, we get caught up in finding our own personal worth, our personal value, our self-esteem in the things of earth rather than in the heart of God. Have you given up on that? Maybe at once you were passionate for Jesus. You were like, anywhere, anytime, God, I'm all in. And then, comfort. You've settled. But here's the main question. How far will you go in trusting Jesus? How far will you go? When we look at the life of Abraham, we see that God invites him into this grand adventure. And that grand adventure is like a once-time invitation, but wrapped up in that grand adventure are all sorts of mini-adventures where life becomes a journey, where we go through ups and we go through downs, where we're constantly being tried and, and tested and experiencing the highs and the lows of life, where we get to experience like, man, I am walking in faith. God is good. Things are amazing. And then we go through seasons of testing and trial where we realize, oh, old altars still exist in my heart. Why do I find myself going back to old habits and old ways? We see this process with Abraham. And also, we start to discover some of the enemy's schemes. And I believe, 
and I don't think this takes any amount of argument from my end to try to convince you of this, that one of the schemes, one of the tools, one of the lies, one of the strategies of the devil to get the church to not go on an adventure is to make the church comfortable. To make the church caught up in the American dream. Build your life. And what happens if we buy into that is that the church tends to be Christian by name only, but not by faith. Because faith is more than belief. Faith is trust, and trust implies action. We saw three of the four altars in Abraham's life last Sunday. But this morning, friends, this morning, we're going to see the altar that cuts through all of the clutter. We're going to experience the one altar that slowly but surely whittles away at the very core of our being. It removes all of the fluff, the one that is absolutely vital in order for us to do the work of God, which is to believe in Jesus. This is the one, this altar is where the temptation to settle over choosing to trust in God becomes palpable. And when we come to this altar, what we find is that the obstacles aren't external things. What we discover is that the obstacles aren't sin, it's not even idols, it's not even people, and it's actually not even you per se. What we discover in coming to the fourth altar that Abraham builds is that we find that God is the obstacle. Does that kind of surprise you to hear? That God is the obstacle. Let me explain as we go through this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to do this. And I would love for you also to kind of like put a little placeholder in chapter 12, because we're going to do a flyby of chapters 12 through 21. And I was wrestling with doing this because it's going to take a little bit of time. But I was like, we will not feel. We cannot like even put ourselves into the same sandals as Abraham unless we understand the whole journey. Okay? So I, I need for us to paint this picture from chapter 12. Some of you got that. I like that. Chapter 12 through 22. Okay? Chapter 12, as we said from the very beginning, God invited him into the adventure. Go to a land that I will show you. Imagine that conversation with your family. Hey, Dad, leaving? Where are you going? No idea. I just heard a voice, a voice I've never heard before. I don't know. And he said, go. Hey, Sarah, wife. Hey, we're going to go. You mean, what? How? What do you mean? Where are we going to go? I don't know. What are we going to do for life? I don't know. God said, go. How do you know it was God? I don't know. I just heard a voice from heaven. Imagine what that's like. And so he goes to this land believing that God is who God said he is and also believing in the promise of blessing that God gave him. It's like, go, you're going to receive a land and many nations are going to come from you. And as he goes forth in this invitation, you start to see this life of trust emerge. And friends, it's in the life of trust where we discover what a life of blessing is. And when I say a life of blessing, I'm not talking about things. 
For some reason, we always connect in our minds, in the church, with God will bless you, God will bless you, God will bless you. We immediately always connected to things. And if we were to be honest, we even tr- like struggle with that connection to money. But it, it's more than that. Does God bless us with things? Yes, because God's good. He's a good giver. He wants to do that for sure. But the greatest blessing on the journey of trust is knowing God. Is knowing God. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. And God knows because he created us. He knows our design. He knows our instinct. He created us to find joy and to live in joy and to pursue pleasure. But because of sin, we now pursue that in other things on the earth. And so God is coming to restore that, to tear down these old altars that we give ourselves to in order to build an altar to him where we will find our life, find our joy, and find the pleasure that we instinctively go after. So he builds an altar in the land. And in this story in chapter 12, we see that God says, hey, this is the land that I'm going to give you. Right? He finally finds out that it's going to be the land of Canaan. And then all of a sudden he's walking through the land and he gets to the place between Bethel and A and he builds an altar to the Lord in the heart of enemy territory. And this is significant. Because Abraham, in this moment, is saying, I'm offering myself to you, God, here. I know now that this battle of trust, to trust you to receive this in this adventure, I'm going to face obstacles. I'm going to face opponents. Abraham had no clue how he was going to inherit the land. He had no idea the battles that were going to be needed. But he trusted that because God said it, it's going to happen. And so I'm going to rest in that. And so the second altar, he just did it himself, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And this is a picture of prayer and dependence and and humility. I am going to rest and give all of myself to him. He's building an altar in the midst of enemy territory, believing in what God said. Now, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, so far in this journey— Everything's great. He's on the mountaintops. Like he's super excited about the future. I'm going to have this land. I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to have, there's going to be multiple people coming from my line. This is amazing. God, you're so good. Everything's great. And every time he prays, God is speaking. Every time he opens up the Bible, God is speaking. And every time he thinks of God, he's got the goose pimples and feels it, right? Like every moment seems to be amazing. He's on the mountaintop. But God knows that our faith needs to be tested in order for our faith to be trusted. Our faith has to be tested in order for him to trust us with things. I don't know why or how, but God has so designed things that he wants to partner with us. He wants us to build his kingdom. He wants us to pray. He wants us to share the gospel. He wants us to intercede, right? He wants us to share in an adventure with him. Our faith needs to be tested in order for our faith to be trusted. And as we 
go through these testings, we go through these fires, which seems kind of cruel and unusual, we come to know more of God and we come to know more of ourselves. And so what we see in this story we're unfolding is that in verse 10 of chapter 12, a famine comes into the land. A circumstance happens that's unplanned and uncalculated, and Abraham doesn't know what to do in that moment. Friends, James 1 tells us, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, when you face, say that word with me, when, okay, on you now, one, two, three. Does that mean it's going to happen? Don't be surprised when the testing of your faith happens. Why? Because your faith is of greater value than gold. Gold for all time has been the most precious and valuable commodity of all time. Still true today. And he says your faith is of greater value than the greatest commodity in all of human history. Your faith surpasses that. But in order to make gold even more valuable, it has to be refined. It has to go through the fire to remove the impurities. Our faith has to be tested in order for us to see the altars that are still built to other things in order for that to be torn down and to build altars to the Lord. It has to happen. Hebrews eleven six. apart from faith, you cannot please God. And the greatest blessing that we can have on this earth is to know him. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life. That you will know me. What is the work of God? Believe. We have to be tested. You see, Abraham had no problem testing God early on. Oh, he promised this? Awesome. I'm in. It's good. Let's go to this land, God. We got this. But when the fire came, as he goes to Egypt in survival mode, because of a, of a t- t- catastrophe, He goes there operating on his own schemes, on his own plans. He doesn't once, he doesn't once call upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't once build an altar to the Lord. In fact, he returns back to an old altar in his life, which is self-reliance. He goes to save his hide. He tells his wife to lie, so he lies. In fact, it starts to work out. He gets blessed. He's like, this is great. But he ends up finding out that this was not ideal. And so he leaves Egypt realizing, I'm not who I thought I was. He realized that he failed that momentary trial, but he's going to succeed in the overall testing because he's going to go back to the previous altar and offer himself again to the Lord in worship. And then we see in altar chapter, or the next altar in chapter 13 where he had another opportunity to go back to old habits, but he chooses not to, and he chooses to trust, which is a beautiful symbol of hope for us as we go through the journey. We go through the peaks and the valleys as we process repentance, and God transforms us more and more into the image of his son. Man, we can see transformation. We can see hope for the character change that we want to see happen inside of us because of the altars that we build to the Lord through faith. Now we go to chapter 15. You with me? We're getting there, okay? 
this is going to make sense in a moment. Chapter 15, Abraham is now older. We don't know how old he is. My guess, this is like 10 years after the initial invitation. Imagine Abraham in this moment. For years, he's now been walking in this trust and not seeing any of it happen. How many of you have things where you believe God was there? Like, I'm going to do this, and you're waiting, or you're praying for something to happen in your life, and you're praying and 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 praying, and years go by. And the temptation to give up, the temptation to settle becomes very real. He's walked the land that was promised. He's grown in wealth. And now God shows up in chapter 15 and says, don't be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, he's reminding Abraham, the greatest blessing you have in your life, Abraham, is me. Is me. Knowing me. I am your very great reward. Like this was a little pillar moment in Abraham's life. So he doesn't forget what really matters in the things to come. But we, now we see human nature show up in Abraham, which is so important for us to understand. He questions God. Hey, God, I'm getting old. My wife can't conceive and she's getting old too, even though I won't say that to her. Is it going to happen? And he's not like asking in bitterness. He's truly curious at this moment. But I would also say there's probably a, 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 like a hint of disappointment. He's like, I've been doing this for some while. Like, God, how is this going to happen? But we're told that he, God reaffirms the covenant and says, yes, it's going to happen. In fact, you're going to have kings and nations coming from your line. And it says that Abraham believed in God. He believed in God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness, which is like the pillar of faith statement in Romans chapter 4. It's so significant. Chapter 16 comes. <laughs> now we see his wife, Sarah, shows up on a scene. She's like, I don't believe in the promise. We need to help God out. He's slow. Maybe all while, like, we've been missing something, and maybe I just need to take the logical clue that since I can't have a child, like, maybe Hagar, whom we inherited from Pharaoh in her time of Egypt, maybe you can have a family with her. So she offers Hagar to Abraham. Now, for us, that's like a, what? That's, ugh. like, we, we wrestle with that. But, like, and we should, but we got to understand, for 75 years, Abraham and Sarah lived in a pagan culture. Those pagan norms and things that are normal, those roots run deep. So this wasn't a foreign concept to them. So what they were doing seemed right and normal and logical. But the problem is, they never once asked God they never once cried upon the Lord, should we do this? They never once built an altar to the Lord to find out if this was right or wrong. They just went with what they thought was logical. Man, friends, listen, the things of culture, what seems to be normal out there, isn't always in alignment with a life of trust. It may seem logical to not tithe. It may seem logical to not give. It may seem logical. Like all, you can just play this out. But it's not in alignment with God's heart. So they reaped what they sowed. 
enmity and strife happen between Hagar and Sarah, and Hagar gets the worst of it. And next thing you know, we move into the next chapter, 17. Abraham, 86 years old, 11 years removed from the initial invitation. No land, no son, ups and downs, but now finally, finally a son. Finally a son. This whole time period where Hagar and Abraham, you know, had a child and all this kind of stuff, like there was no interaction with God. God didn't intervene to say, no, this isn't right. So when Ishmael was born, you got to imagine Abraham was like, here we go. Finally, tangible proof of the promise. 99 years old, in chapter 17, God comes and reaffirms the covenant and promise almost as if to stimulate Abraham's faith because now in this scene, it's been 13 years. Ishmael's 13 years old. You gotta imagine Abraham and Sarah were building their life in the thought that the promise and everything that was gonna happen through Ishmael for 13 years, they've grown very comfortable with that idea. They believed it to their core. God comes 13 years to rattle and stimulate and shake up Abraham's faith and says, oh, there's more to this Abraham. Kings and nations and everything's going to come through you. You're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to have a child through Sarah. <laughs> I love the Bible because it's so raw and honest. What's Abraham's response? He laughs. <laughs> That's, God, that was a good one. Yeah. What? Like, he, he laughs. How, how is this possible? I'm almost 100, and she's 90, and she's well beyond the years of childbearing. It's impossible. I actually think there's something else going on deeper in that. It, what I believe that's going on deeper is what's revealed in the next line. God, why can't it be Ishmael? Why do we have to do this again? Why do I have to try to trust you for something that seems harder? Here's a son. Take him. God's like, no. It's going to be through Sarah. Well, next chapter, angels come, Sarah overhears, she laughs. She's like, <laughs> that's so funny. And God goes, why did your wife laugh? She's like, I didn't laugh. I didn't like, you did, you did. Abraham and Sarah in this moment are both struggling to trust God in this next leg of the adventure. They don't want any nasty disturbing and uncomfortable things called an adventure because they don't want to be late for dinner. God rhetorically states, is anything impossible for God? Friends, free advice. When God asks a question, he's not looking for an answer. He's, he's asking the question for you to look at your heart for you to analyze the altars in your life. Chapter 20 comes. Abraham returns back to his old ways. He goes back to lying and saving his own hide. Chapter 21 comes at the exact time that they said would happen. Abraham's now 100. Sarah's now 91. They conceive. She gives a birth to Isaac, and they are full of laughter. 
of joy, of wonderment. Oh my goodness, could you believe this? They go from scoffing, doubt, and disgust. Honestly, there's disgust in that to, oh my goodness, it happened just like God said he would. This is amazing. 25 years of waiting to finally get the promised son. Joy, peace, I can't believe this. I'm back on the mountaintop. And at the end of chapter 21, God builds, or uh, Abraham again calls out to the Lord and he calls him the everlasting God. And this was an indication of what he now experienced to be true of God and what he's presently feeling in the moment. A sense of peace and an arrival. I can settle in. Here's the promise. It has arrived. This is amazing. God, you are everlasting God. Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. Ooh, he's riding high. Chapter 22, verse 1. Moses, when he wrote this, He's letting us know so we don't freak out when we read the rest of the story. It's like those old TV commercials when I was like, shh, beep, beep, beep. This is only a test. This is only a test. That's what we see. After these things, God tested Abraham. So we, as the audience, don't freak out. But we got to remember, Abraham had no idea that this was a test. No idea. And because it's a test, it becomes an adventure of trust. He says to Abraham, Abraham. And he replies, here I am. In other words, it's like, this is a friend-to-friend interaction. This is intimacy. And when he says, here I am, that's a Hebrew word, henene, which means all of me, God, I'm here. Whatever it is you want, I'm here. Have you ever said that to God when everything's riding high? And you're like feeling like, man, this is great. I had great moments with God. I'm hearing God. I'm feeling God. This is great. Anything, God, here I am. And God's like, okay. Okay. Take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains I'm going to tell you about. God, was that you? (laughs) Abraham knows the voice of God now. So he can't wrestle that. He knows this is God. Guess who's just become the obstacle? God did. Why am I saying that? God said that the descendants that are numerous as the stars is going to come through your son Isaac, which implies he has to be alive. It's all riding on Isaac. And now you want me to kill him? Conflict. Wrestling with God's character. He's good, but is he? He's faithful, but is he? He's everlasting. Is he? Ha! 
how can you say this is the promise and now you want me to kill him? Are you just cruel? Now there's all sorts of internal anguish, but the Hebrew text does something that our English translations miss out because it's hard to translate it. But like when it says like take your son, there's a little Hebrew word in there that actually says, please take your son which I think is absolutely beautiful because that shows us that God is compassionate and understanding the depth of anguish, what this request is going to cause in Abraham's heart. Take your son, please take your only son, the one whom you dearly loved. I know that this is going to be hard, but you've got to trust me. Even though he doesn't say this, like this is God's law. He's like, there's something better there. I'm doing something, but Abraham doesn't know that. God is the obstacle because he's now wrestling with his character, with his promises, what he said to be true. God doesn't give any promise here. He doesn't give any outcome here. He doesn't give any sense of blessing here. He just says, take your son. Like this is the test of all tests. And I'm telling you, if you're going to go on an adventure of trust in Jesus, this test will come. Or something in your life, some circumstance in your life is going to cause you to wrestle with the character of God. Is he good or is he not good? I worshiped him on the high mountaintop here, but now I'm under fire. God, how can it be? And we asked the infinite question, why? Significant wrestling, significant struggle, significant grief and anguish. Friends, The greatest blessing in this life is to know God. And because we've been entrenched in an old way of living for so long, the only way for our minds to be renewed and for our hearts to know who God is, we have to wrestle and resolve in the conflict, in the journey, the the apparent feeling of God being self-contradicting. Many people who don't believe in Jesus will not put their faith in Jesus because of the story. But they're missing the point. God is sympathetic here because he also knows that a time is coming when he's going to take his only son, his only beloved son, and sacrifice him and offer him for the sins of the world. Oh, God knows He's not cruel. He's not being mean in the test. What is the work of God? I'm going to repeat this. What is the work of God? John 6. The work isn't to do X, Y, and Z. The work is to believe. It's to believe. Because without faith, it's impossible. In fact, you go to James 2, chapter 17, where there's this wrestling about faith and works. He's like, fine, you show me your faith apart from works. And I'll show you my faith with works. Because faith apart from works is dead. It's Christian in name only. The work of God is to believe. It's to trust. But trust will always lead to action. So God in this moment is trying to stir up Abraham. Offer your only son. Do you trust me? It's ultimately the question that's being stirred up there. Even though at the initial question, that is not what Abraham is thinking about. That is not what he's processing at that moment. 
Go to Moriah, the land of Moriah, to a mountain that I will show you. Echoes of chapter 12. Go to a land that I will show you. What land? I don't know. Just go. Go to this land. Okay, the, okay I'll go to a mountain. I'll show you. Which mountain? I'll show you. And it's a three-day journey. Three-day journey. And I think that's intentional. Because God didn't want Abraham to make a knee-jerk reaction he didn't want Abraham to make a decision out of an emotional response. He wanted Abraham to resolve what he was going to do. Friends, isn't the real battle of belief in the waiting? Isn't that in the waiting where we wrestle significantly with the character of God? Three days. He has a son and two young men. I can't imagine much conversation going on. I imagine the silence being so deafening, full of heartache and grief. Did Abraham tell his wife, Sarah? How did that go, if so? All we know is that verse 3, he gets up early in the morning, my hunch is, because he didn't sleep, or either him and Sarah talked really long. He got up early in the morning, he saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac, and he split the wood. This is, this is interesting because that's not the order you would do things. It was like he did things like in reverse, which, which is meant to kind of give us this feeling that he's a little bit disoriented, meaning he's a little bit mentally and emotionally distracted. He's preoccupied, wrestling significantly. And he goes... And on the third day, he looks up and he sees the land. I can imagine that when he sees the land, his pulse started really going. Like you, can, like you know when you, like you have that anxiety or fear, you can actually feel your pulse and sometimes you can hear it. I imagine that's the moment. Gulp. <sighs> Almost another wave of fear, a wave of anxiety. Am I really going to do this? And they get to the mountain. And then they finally, like he says, like, hey, you, the donkey can't come up, the boy and I will go up. And almost like giving him another opportunity going, since the donkey can't go up, I guess we can't go either. I don't know. It's like almost another opportunity to say no. But he chooses to continue to go. And then we see something. We see the fruit of Abraham's wrestling. We see the fruit of the battle of trust. Verse 5, stay here with the donkey, he's saying to the two young men. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. He's not just saying it to cover up his intentions. This is actually a statement of trust. Because as he was journeying, Abraham had to have resolved I can't say God is good only then and not good here. I can't say God is only faithful then and not here. I cannot say that God is everlasting here and not over there. So he resolved that if God told me the promise is going to be through my son Isaac, and if he did the impossible thing and allowed my wife and I to have a child when we are so old, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he, he's, he's going to see to it. Somehow, some way he's going to do it. I don't know how, but I'm going to trust that no matter what, I'm coming back with him. And Hebrews 11 actually 
reveals this to us what was happening inside of his heart. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, it tells us that Abraham resolved that even if he did actually have to kill him, that God would raise him again from the dead because the promise was connected to Isaac's life. Oh, to have that trust. He goes up the mountain. Silence between Isaac and his dad is overwhelming. And Isaac just goes, Dad, I wasn't going to say anything. But now that we're almost there, where's the lamb? But did you forget something or, or what's going on, you know? And Abraham's statement is not, again, to cover up. It, it was him rehearsing belief. The Lord will provide. Which in the rawness of the Hebrew means God will see to it. He will see to it because he's true to who he is. He doesn't tell Isaac how. He doesn't tell him when. He just says he will see to it. He goes... Now, friends, listen, Isaac is younger than dad, faster than dad, stronger than dad, and he willingly gave himself. So somewhere in there, parents, listen. Parents, listen. Somewhere in this journey, Isaac is bowering or leaning on the faith of his father. Somehow, some way, because Isaac is trusting his dad enough to allow his hands to be bound, to allow him to carry the wood up the mountain and to lay there without flinching. Parents, your faith matters in how you live it out in front of your kids. I got to imagine Abraham had to have rehearsed the story. Had to have. Abraham is about to do it. Can you imagine all of the feeling the anguish, takes the knife, raises it up, and about to come down, and angel, heaven opens up and says, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. To which Abraham's like, thank you. Right, like, here I am. In other words, he's like saying, all of me, God. All of me. He says, don't harm the boy. And he says something that I think we need to take to heart. God says, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld that which is most precious to you. I believe there should be two things that we should long to hear from God. One, we hear it at most funerals for those who follow Jesus, that they're hearing, well done, good and faithful servants. And that should be something we long to hear too. But I also believe we should long to hear God say this. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you're not willing to withhold anything from me. That's heavy. This is a relationship of trust. God will provide no matter what fire you are in, no matter what season you are in, 
no matter what, he invites you on an adventure because he knows that as you go trusting in him, you're going to tear down the old altars and you're going to build new ones to him. And every step of the way that you experience more and more and more of who he is, you're going to experience more and more of the life that it was designed for you to live. But don't be surprised when you are going to be tested. Friends, listen, God provided on that mountain. He saw to it. But God also saw to it for the whole world. Because God knew that the only chance that we as humanity would have to be restored and reconciled to him is for him to give up his one and only dearly loved son. The son whom all of the promises depend on. The son whom the covenant of and relationship is attached to. Jesus, like Isaac, was led at, like a lamb to the slaughter. Even Jesus wrestled a little bit with God in the garden. If there's another way. Father, where's the, the lamb for the sacrifice? Father, if there's another way. He carried, Isaac carried the wood on his back up the mountain. Jesus carried the wood of the cross on his back up to the mountain of Golgotha. The son was willing to give himself up. Jesus willingly was willing to give give himself up. He allowed himself to be bound, nailed to a cross. The son had a three-day journey. And it's different because Jesus had a different three-day journey. He journeyed after he died for three days. And he finally resurrected, trusting that God would raise him from the dead in triumph and victory over death. Which is why now anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We'll have the invitation for the newness of life where all of these things that have defined us, that cause pain and turmoil, we can abandon them because we know whom we trust. God had to go through what Abraham didn't have to go through. Isaac didn't have to go through what Jesus went through. Friends, if you have not built an altar in your heart for Jesus, and if you have not called upon his name there in your heart, I'm I'm, I'm begging you, I'm imploring with you, do so today. Do so today. Because whatever it is that you are pursuing and whatever it is you're looking for that you think is going to bring you joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and longing, it's only going to end in death and forever eternal separation from God. You have been invited into a restored relationship with Jesus. This is your morning to build an altar and call upon his name. To the church, I'm speaking to you who are Christian in name only. May I be so bold. Does your belief, let me rephrase it, does your actions reflect your belief? Are you only willing to worship God and declare his goodness when things are good? But when things get hard, Have you settled? I've done enough journeys. I've done enough things. I know God's asking me to do this next thing, but I've done enough. I'm tired. I don't want to. I like what I have. And we start to fear that maybe God wants to take everything away from us and ruin our lives and be mean. But if God asks us to give up more, 
because he knows that there's more on the other side. So I want to end with a few questions. Will you trust in the character of God even when you do not know the details? Will you trust in the character of God even when you don't know the the details? Will you continue to trust in God's heart when you do not have an explanation for the why? What we're going to do as we conclude, and, and I'm thankful for your patience. I felt burdened to get through all of that, so I didn't feel the need to shortchange any of it. So just letting you know. But we're going to do some work now. As we've been doing through every message in this series, is we want you to do the work of belief, the work of faith. And sometimes that work requires an active step of humility, of dependence. And so that's why we have these prayer kneelers up here and anywhere up in the front. I want to do a few things. One, if you're ready to build an altar to Jesus and you want to declare his name for the first time, I'm going to be over here. Come up, let's talk, let's pray. If there are some of you in this room who have been convicted by being Christian in name only, and like it hits you and you're like, oof, you don't even need to wrestle with it, you just know that's there, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you, come up to the altar and symbolically tear down the old and pray to build anew. If there's some of you who have settled for less, come on up to the altar, pray. I want to encourage you, respond to the Holy Spirit. He can only do good. He can only do good. Our faith has to be tested in order to be trusted. Jesus, we thank you that you did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you did what Isaac didn't have to do. You died our death. You willingly sacrificed and offered your life for us so that we just simply believe by faith through your grace. And because of that faith, we've been declared right for all time. We, we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to earn or strive. We are in the beloved. We can find a peace that can't be taken, a joy that can't be shaken, a hope that is alive and active. Lord, thank you that you want us to experience joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And thank you that it's wrapped up in who you are. Father, I pray for my friends in this room who have yet to call upon your name. Lord, I pray that today through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to see the truth and beauty of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who maybe have slipped away and grown complacent and comfortable and not wanting to risk and they don't want to take those steps of faith because there's maybe a fear or maybe there's just too much attachment to a blessing or a promise and it's actually the thing that pulls them away. God, I pray that through your spirit you would do the convicting work and that they would hear your heart of love. Lord, we don't want to be a church that's Christian in name only. God, we want to be a church that is willing to go on every adventure with you, 
willing to take every risk with you and to have a settled trust, you will see to it. Whatever it is, you will see to it. The Lord will provide. So this is your time, church, to do work with the Lord. Nothing at this moment is more important than that. You don't have to worry about your lunch. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. The Lord will see to it. But this is your moment. This is your moment. I encourage you to use it. So as you so feel led, come on up. No one's going to judge you. There's nothing to fear.